Voices serves as the megaphone for individuals who have endured transformational change. By highlighting trials and triumphs, our desire is to create a safe space for pivotal conversations, which in turn will deepen the story and provoke hope for you, our listeners. As you may know, change is never easy, but it is inevitable. You are not alone in what you're facing. Your transformation is possible, purposeful, and now. And here's Aaron Wiggum, founder and managing director of New You, with this week's guest. Welcome to another edition of New Voices. My name is Aaron Wiggum, and I'm your host. I'm also the managing director of we have a wonderful episode uh, here for you today. Uh, this is a dear friend of mine who I haven't known an extremely long period of time, but we just have a kindred spirits. And um, immediately when we met, we connected and we stayed in touch and we look out for each other and for our best interests. And so I really am excited for you, know, you all to meet her and for her to be able to um, share some of her story with us today, all right? And so you're in for a treat. This woman is dynamic. She is a uh, formal, formal uh, model. Uh, she did runway. She is um, an extremely amazing thought leader. Um, she is a strategist to the core. She is accomplished. She is the definition of poise. Um, she just brings a, a glow to, to whatever she puts our hands to. And I'm just so glad that she's my friend. I'm so glad that we've gotten a chance to connect and bond in this way. And so I bring to you none other than um, the amazing Ina Medina. Welcome, Ina. Thank you, Aaron. What an introduction. Um, thank you so much. It's really an honor to be here. And I'm so incredibly happy and just proud of all the things that you're accomplishing, all the lives that you're changing, and really how you're impacting, you know, how people choose to wake up every single day and how they want to, you know, just how you want to live your life, right? Um, so thank you. And I'm, I'm just excited to be here. Thank you for giving me my flowers. I love that. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> So yeah, I'm, I'm really, this is really, this has been a long time coming. We've had some dates move and whatever. And so I'm excited to have this conversation with you today uh, with our audience. And so as we always do, Ina, we start at the beginning. So we just want to hear, you know, what is the Ina Fadina story from, from, from the beginning or wherever you like to start? Oh, I always say, when does that story or when does that journey begin, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I'll say that. You know, my name is Aina for a reason. I was born in Lagos, Nigeria, um, to two amazing, incredible parents. I have five phenomenal siblings. And really, everything that I do, they are my compass for everything. So really, my journey began when I came into this world. And I'm called Aina because I was born with the umbilical cord around my neck. Um, and, you know, when I think about what that means about survival, about resilience, about grit, about hustle, how you, I literally fought to come into this world alive. Wow. I think that is when that journey began for me because mm -hmm. I was able to um, enjoy the sweetness of being born into this amazing family. Um, but my journey into the world was one of struggle for myself and my mother, right? Wow. 
Um, so, and the physicians who had to make sure that I, you know, so I think for me, that is when my why, and that is, that was when I, that, that is when my journey truly began because I understood what it means to survive in this world, um, with the foundation, with the values, with the morals, with the lessons of my incredible parents, my grandparents, and really just being surrounded by love, um, from the moment at which I came into this world. So that's when my journey began, honestly speaking, um, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if that's the answer you wanted, okay. but yeah. you know, and that and then that journey evolves with every age and every period of time of your life when it's a different journey, a different experience, a different level of excitement, a different level of pain, endurance, um, and just standing up for what you believe in as well, too. So yeah. Okay. And so when did you make the journey to the states? So I moved to the states. Um, now you're gonna make me date myself. But... Oh, you're not thinking about time. You can just say age. Your age. It's all good. Um, I think. I think that time matters, so people okay. understand. Sort of like yeah. you know. So I moved to the states. And like, sorry. They gotta understand what was going on at that time. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I moved to the states when I was 13 years old, um, and that's an interesting point in time, right? When yeah. you're sort of like a teenager. Moving into a new um, a new country, and yes, you know, I had traveled to the West before on multiple occasions. Um, you know, my family went to London every summer. Mm-hmm. My sisters went to boarding school in England. But there's something different about visiting a place versus living in the place, right? Absolutely. And then this was '95, New York City, um, concrete jungle, the era of Rudy Giuliani in New York City. The era when we had to go through metal detectors to get into school, which was very, very different from how I grew up going to a private school in Lagos. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Um, in addition to that, just understanding what was going on culturally and how, for example, hip hop was shaping um, the future of what the culture is in the States. Right. Yeah. Um, in addition to that, but also moving at, um, at 13 at where you're kind of slightly coming of age. And I was meant to actually go into the eighth grade based off my age, but my mother, being who she is, fought for me to stay in my grade, which was the 10th grade. So just imagine being a 13-year-old African new immigrant kid in the 10th grade, gold metal detectors in her school. It was like a bit of a mind, you know what? So, wow. Um, wow. yeah. Let's, wait, let's, let's, let's not act like that was normal. Now, hold on, let's pause there. A 13-year-old in the 10th grade? Oh my goodness, that had to be that had to be such a shocking experience. Um, and maybe that's where a lot of the maturity comes in too. It's like mm. you actually had to be ahead of the curve because at, 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 at 13, I don't know where my mind was at 13, but yeah. it wasn't on a 10th grade level, I promise you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, think, I grew up with three older sisters, right? Okay. So that the level of maturity that you have yeah. and then intellectually, socially, there's a level of sort of curiosity that you have as well too and my parents were very very when it came to academia they did not play like we had tutors coming to the house from the age of like six years old wow okay so it was something that from an academic perspective it wasn't really a challenge socially not so much because i had older sisters but to some degree i will say that there were um there were, there were nuances where you're like, okay, 
people are speaking in this particular way. This is not my language. Or yeah. This is not how I speak. And if I go home, I'm going to get, you know, smacked. Right. <laughs> like, yeah, 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 yeah. Just like the American culture is very, very different from like, you know, you know, how I grew up. But at the same time, you know, my parents had very Western sensibilities, even though when we walked into our household, you were very much right. in a Nigerian household. You know what uh, I mean? There was no ifs, ands, or buts about it. But they understood the importance of them giving us a little bit of breathing room to experience what life in America truly is. Yeah. Um, and I did have to grow up very, very quickly because, you know, when you move here, when things are always done for you in Nigeria, where, you know, you had services, like everything was done, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then you move to America and you have to wash the dishes. Better do it yourself, you yeah. Wash your clothes and you right. have to make sure before mommy and daddy gets home that you start, you know, blending the pepper. Every Nigerian will relate to this. Or you bought the meat out of the freezer as soon as you woke up in the morning because mommy and daddy already left the house. So there's a right. certain level of like, you know, becoming a mini house manager mm -hmm. when your parents had to go hustle in a different way that they hustled when they were in Nigeria. So yeah, there were yeah, it was it was it was challenging, but I'm happy for the experience. And, and let me double down a little bit on that, the, like the code switching that you're speaking to. So like, you had to be one way in school and in assembly, but at home you were very much in a Nigerian home. Can you talk about how like that code switching uh, even plays into your work today or or throughout your evolution? Absolutely, I think. And I go back and forth about the code switching, right? Because yeah. ultimately speaking, you should be able to be who you are. Authentically. And yeah. Authentically into like yeah. any place that you're in. Yeah. But if you think about just being even Nigerian alone in Nigeria, mm -hmm. there's a level of code switching that we had to historically do because English is not our first language. Right. It's not, well, rather it's not our native language. Exactly. So we had to code switch from a very, very young state of existence due to colonization, the power and the influence that the English culture had on Africans. Yeah. Um, and then you moved to America. So it was easy to kind of assimilate because you're like, okay, you know, like when I speak to my grandmother, I have to code switch from my grandmother to some degree, code switch to my parents. And so this is just early, early on, right. code switch to like the uppity, you know, kids in Nigeria. So code switch is something that we're just used to. Wow. And I think coming to America, Yes, there were challenges where, as an immigrant that had an accent, or that still, in, you know, when I see things, I still have an accent, mm -hmm. where you're seen as being different, but mm -hmm. you just simply have to learn to exist in other people's spaces, even within the context of your race, mm -hmm. even within the context of your nationality as well, too. If I go to the northern part of Nigeria, I have to assimilate to their culture versus the culture of where I grew up in the Southwest region of Nigeria, you know what I mean? So it's not just code switching in terms of language, it's code switching culturally Cultural. and being respectful, yeah. quite yeah. frankly, of the lay of the land of where you are. Mm. Wow, that's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> While being 13 in the 10th grade, okay. <laughs> okay, and so take us along this journey. So you, uh, you go off to college, uh, upon completing high school, you go off to college, um, and you went to Northwestern, correct? No, I went to Temple for undergrad. Oh, undergrad. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, gotcha. undergrad. Um, so right. I was 16 when I went to college, and I actually uh, went to, so my parents moved to Philadelphia. Um, I went to four different high schools, to kind of give you context as well, too. 
to oh throw more initiative to four different high schools. Um, just my parents just always kept chasing the best school district for us, right? Got it. And I didn't really think about what are the implications of four different high schools, but for them it was like that's a better school, a better school district. Yeah. Um, and you know that had its own effect, right? Socially, where I didn't have friends in high school, my sisters were my friends, right. um, and also I just went to school and came home and did homework, did not socialize, didn't go to prom, didn't go to football games. Mm-hmm. You know, I was like, what is this homecoming thing that we go like, why would you go sit outside in the cold to go watch a football game? I just right. didn't understand it. I didn't get it. But I graduated high school in Philadelphia and then went to Temple for undergrad at the age of 16. And the first year I wanted to live on, I couldn't go to New York. And I also wanted to take a gap year. And my parents were like, what's like, what are you talking about? So first year I lived at home. um, So I commuted because I was too young. And then sophomore year, I told my parents I wanted to move on campus. Mm -hmm. And then senior year, I would move back and that I made them buy me a car for senior year. So I moved back home. So, you know, I learned my negotiation skills quite earlier on in my life. Um, So, yeah. Good, good. And so you, you 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 get through that whole period. Do you go straight into the grad school or? No, 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 no. So while wow, I graduated Temple at the age of twenty, um, okay. I wanted to be a doctor, like you know, a lot of immigrant kids, and not because of my parents, quite frankly, mm-hmm. but for me, I said, what would make sense for the sacrifices that my parents made coming to this country? Like my parents are very much about figure out what you want to do. As long as you're a good person, you do well at whatever it is that you want to achieve. And if something isn't working for you, ask yourself, why didn't I get an A in this class? And then you go back and fix it. It wasn't, you know what I mean? So it was very much about you're going to make mistakes. You have to learn from your mistakes kind of deal. So when I graduated at Temple and then said I want to take a gap year, my parents were like, what are you talking about this gap year thing? Mm -hmm. So eventually I started working for a biotech company, actually, um, Mm -hmm. which was because I wanted to be a doctor, but I was quite young. I thought work for a couple of years and get a bit of experience. Mm -hmm. And when I worked for the biotech company, I realized I was more fascinated by the role that innovation and technology had to play in the healthcare space Mm -hmm. as we think about access, as we think about delivery, and as we think about how as patients, we can reimagine what healthcare can be. The experience can be for patients and the community as well, too. So at that point, I was going to go back and get my MBA um, and focus in healthcare management. So shifted from taking the MCAT to the GMAT, was working for this biotech company, selling heart devices, um, you know, getting my car, listen to the radio, go from one doctor to another doctor, to another doctor, to another doctor. And then um, I randomly got scouted to do a random fashion show in Philadelphia. Was not, mm-hmm. trust me, I never saw myself in that light. But I said, yeah. you know, why not take the opportunity to just, you know, do something interesting? You're still young enough to experience this. Yeah. So I started modeling in the Philadelphia area in the evenings. Um, I would come to New York on the weekends to do like modeling jobs while doing my full time job invested in real estate in Philadelphia as well too and that was like 22 23 at this point and at the age of 23 I got laid off the biotech company and you know I went home in tears even though I invested in real estate I still lived at home with my parents so I went home crying um and my dad looked at me and was like what are you crying for like I was like I just never learned I didn't understand what being laid off meant Yes. And I was like, it happens to older people, not to young people. What's, you know, <laughs> my dad literally said this modeling thing you're doing. Why not move to New York in New York every weekend? Why not move to New York and pursue modeling full time? And I wow. said, OK, 
And my mom agreed. So I had really, really amazing parents. So I moved to New York and I thought I'll just do it for two years, get the interesting B school application story. Like, okay, from pre med from pre-med to biotech to fashion model. Um, and I moved to New York and I Gosh, I modeled for about 13 years, a little over 13 years, where I worked for global brands like Oscar de la Renta, Fendi, Versace, Afris, Atkins is a Swiss German company, Bergdorf Goodman, Neiman Marcus. And then that fashion experience working with the design studios, I did runway initially, but at the age of 23, 24, I had bills to pay. I would not go to cattle calls. I was like, okay, I could have this clients who are gonna book me consistently. Right. And that experience really taught me to what the business of fashion truly meant. So what is it like to work behind the scenes of fashion? So from idea in someone's head to the sketch, right? And then from that sketch to what we call the toile, which is like what they fit before they actually make the fabric. And my frame was what was being used for that. Mm. And then when we sell to, you know, individuals like you know, God rest us so Andrew and Leo Talley would come into design studio and a winter would come in to reveal the collection before the fashion shows would happen. Mm -hmm. And then they would have the runway, the big models right. run, you know, do the runway show. And then I would be the model that would then sell the clothes right. to the Burger of Goodman. So what you saw in the retail stores, I would be the one that the buyers would come in to see in the clothes, right? Got it. So, and then I also would then do trunk shows in the Bergdorf and Neiman's. I would walk around the store wearing the clothes talk to customers. So I then knew what the end customer looked like. So I was able to see the entire cycle of fashion. I was able to also understand sort of like the importance of consumer mindset, the importance of legacy of a brand, the importance of storytelling. Um, and also just understanding every single part of the value chain of fashion and also seeing how the internet impacted retail as well too. So yes. And also who the global consumer is, um, because, you know, when I was modeling, like the peak of my career, the American consumer was no longer the number one consumer. It became Dubai was number one. China mm -hmm. was number one. Right. Africans were going to Dubai and London and Paris to buy things, right? right. So those were people who were buying for different customer segmentation. So they were buying differently than what New York was buying, than what Dallas or San Francisco was buying. So I was really able to understand, like, this is the way consumers think globally. So, wow. you know, through that experience, I was like, okay, I was always entrepreneurial um, yeah. just because when you're modeling, you know that you have, um, there's a point in time where you have to move to the next stage of your career. And I said to myself, I'm still doing well. I'm still making money. Why not start your own business? I, I actually saw a coach. I believe in the importance of just seeing life coaches, um, you know, you know, therapist, like whatever you need to see to take yourself out of your situation to kind of right. help you look in. Right. So, so I was seeing a coach and I was like, should I go back to business school now? And she's like, what do you actually want to do? Why not start that business before you then go to grad school? Mm -hmm. So I started my own consulting company, consulting for small emerging fashion, lifestyle and retail brands. And, and I would, you know, still modeling. So during the low season in New York, I'll go to London, go to Lagos, get clients, come back to America. And I started producing content um, just because I realized the power of like ownership of owning your own story and your own as a brand. Mm -hmm. What that matters when you take ownership of that experience and what you convey to your consumers. And then I started my web series called Eye of Africa, which yes. is the inspiration, individualism and innovation of Africa, where I interviewed creatives, entrepreneurs and investors who are inspired by Africa through a global lens. So I was very busy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was doing a lot. To say the least, yeah. <laughs> 
And around 2015, 2016, I was being invited to all the business schools around the country to speak about my entrepreneurial experience. So, you know, the Harvards of the world, the Northwesterns of the world, the Warrens, the Columbias, um, doing the African Business School Conference. And at that point, I had this revelation. I was like, it's time. So I gave up modeling, um, moved back to Philly um, to be with my to you know, got to save money, mm-hmm. took the GMAT and then applied to Kellogg, um, North, um, Kellogg School of Management, which is Northwestern's business school. Yeah. Um, to their executive MBA program. And it was important for me to go to a top tier school because I understood all the, you haven't done this, you haven't done that, you haven't done this, you haven't done that. And I said- Disqualifiers, yeah. Disqualifiers, absolutely. As, you know, I knew what I wanted to do. And rather than me having more obstacles in my way, I was like, I am going to go to a top tier school and deal with the rejections of every other school. And but I was determined to get into a top tier program. And I remember when I was doing the GMAT, my mom was like, you know, I, I got tutors. Like, I'll, you know, full disclosure, I got tutors to take the GMAT. Um, I think I took it like three times. And my mom was like, this, like, just, just go to like, you know, Temple is a great school. Just go to Temple go to Villanova, and I know those are amazing, phenomenal schools. Mm-hmm. However, I knew that even, this is going to sound really, really crazy, but people were like, oh, but you're just a model. Like, mm, yeah. that was that was a disqualifier. Yeah, yeah. 100%. So for me, I said to myself, I will not give you any reason to doubt my brilliance or to doubt my intelligence. Right. Um, and sometimes I go back and forth about that because why do we always have to Go to those schools in order to get in the rooms when our counterparts don't have to do that. Yes. But anyway, that's another conversation. (laughs) That's this conversation too. Yeah. (laughs) Before you go on, let me just give your dad some flowers right here because what vision it took for him to be able to say, pick your head up. I know you just lost your job. You're doing this other thing. Go, like, you have the grace to Mm. go and explore. I want you to go explore. Like you've been on this trajectory and you've been focused and you've produced and I'm proud of you. But now you but but I want you to I want you to spread your your wings. You know, NDRE has a song, um uh, a bird cannot fly until it breaks its shell, right? And your dad gave you the grace to be able to say like Go break your shell and fly. And yeah. and if you don't land, I'm here for you. But yes. you will you will make it because yes. everything like you've proven yourself. So I just want to yeah. give your dad some flowers right yeah. here. And I've never met him before, I don't know him. But yeah. that, that takes a lot of strength and vision, yeah. especially when he is working, him and he and your mother are working as hard as they are. Yeah. Migrating a family over here, learning this system, like they're, like they wanted a, a more, I would imagine they would want a more surefire bet than mm-hmm. what the modeling mm-hmm. industry could afford you. Yeah. But that grace is necessary for yeah. a lot of people. Absolutely. And to be able to have that runway, no pun intended, yeah. to have that runway to kind of figure out your life, your 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 worth, your mm-hmm. your tenacity, tenacity, mm-hmm. your resolve, Absolutely. like who you are as an adult, like all of that, 
that that takes a lot. It, it takes a whole lot. Yeah, and you know what? I am standing before you because of my parents, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think my dad is who he is because of his mother. Mm. And also the kind of woman that he married as well, mm. too, because of the way that my father, I mean, my mother's father and mother raised her. Okay. So when we talk about the influence of like this generational um, connectivity, yeah. you know, my parents are who they are because of who their parents were. I am exactly. who I am because of who my parents are as well, too. Yeah. And my mother, like, I, like my dad is like my ace. Like the right. fact that to your point, I can till today as a grown woman, yeah. I can still go home and yeah. be like, it did not work out. And yeah. I still have my, I still have my bedroom in my parents' house. Yes. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? I get it. Yeah. And my mother, um, people talk about reinvention. Mm. People talk about when you have to, when life happens, you hold your head up high mm-hmm. and you keep pushing forth and you reinvent yourself based yeah. on circumstances. Yeah. Like both of my parents, between the day that I was from when I was born till today, they have had, they've evolved, re-evolved and evolved many, 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 many careers. Mm. So because they did it, I knew that it was possible for me to do it. You know exactly. what I mean? Yep. Um, and my mother is just like, like I said, my father, I truly believe that you know, he grew up with all men in his house. Like mm-hmm. he had four brothers and he had five daughters and one son. So, <laughs> so I think that female empowerment was important to him, mm-hmm. not just because he had girls, but he married the kind of woman that he married. Got it. You know sense. what I mean? Yep. I think yep. that plays a huge difference when you think about how are we going to choose to raise our children yeah. Especially our daughters, yeah, and our sons, because yeah. you know, let's not negate that. But right. so we want to make sure that when they go into the world, that there's nothing that's they're equipped. Them. Yeah, they're equipped. Absolutely, hundred percent. At the same time, you know, recently I've been having conversations, you know, with myself and with dear friends of mine. When I say that, you know, a lot of parents who wanted their kids to aspire for everything to be everything right mm-hmm. it was a disillusion to some degree about like oh i can i'm gonna go into the world and da, 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 or you can't stop me yeah but the world is not ready for you no at all right. the world is not ready for you so <laughs> yeah. you then go through, you're like oh shit well daddy told me and mommy yeah. told me how i was raised is not how the world is receiving me because i'm too much exactly yeah 100 percent. yeah uh, so uh Oh, there's just so many was wrong. Okay, so let, let's stay in the modeling zone right here for a minute. Just, just another minute or two. So, um, I, let's talk about the what it felt like to you know be in some Oscar de la Renta or some you know like what what did it feel like to actually make your own way? Like mm. you didn't follow a path of modeling or a path of you didn't uh you weren't prepped for this since you were five years old and do pageants and all so you're just breaking into the what did it feel like to break in and actually make it in and then make a lifestyle out of it can you can you tell us a little bit about that honestly those were the i've had a pretty pretty amazing life yeah it sounds it sounds like it <laughs> um but I will say that number one, I was lucky to have like I wasn't groomed for it, right? Exactly. So I think that was important about what how I was able to be successful. Mm-hmm. 
I wasn't chasing to be a supermodel. Like I love Naomi Campbell. I love yeah. Linda Evangelista. I love Cindy Crawford. Like those were like, oh, Krista Turlington. I just mm-hmm. watched supermodels on um, Apple TV. Okay. Those were the epitome of beauty. Mm-hmm. And I did not see myself, I didn't even think about it because I was like, my job on this earth is to be an academically smart person. Right. So the notion of beauty was like not even like high school. Like I wasn't. I, I was like, my job here is to like get a great education. Yeah. But what modeling allowed me to do was just to own myself, own my power, yeah. um, come into this sense of womanhood and sense of self that I think the industry breaks a lot of women. I'm not going to deny that. For a lot of women, it's their down, it's their downfall because they place their existence on beauty. Exactly. But because I never did that. For me, I was like, wait, I could make this amount of money in one day. Yeah. Shit. <laughs> like, <I can> go- <laughs> Where I got the sign. <laughs> oh, I signed the paper. But I think to me, it was a job. Yeah. You know what I mean? I didn't yeah. care about the fancy, like, well, I'm flying here, I'm flying there. For me, it was like, oh, I'm able to make this amount of money mm-hmm. just to show up yeah. and be pretty. Yeah. In quotes, whatever pretty is. Right, you know? right. Yeah. Um, and then it was also a state of his existence where I was able to be a chameleon as well, too, based mm-hmm. on the different outfits that I was wearing, mm-hmm. um, because I was not the traditional sense of beauty of mm-hmm. what I thought I sort of, I saw in the magazines, but these brands embraced me and I had, my hair was natural. My hair is so natural. That's another mm-hmm. conversation we're doing today. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was able, and this was when Afros were not in, this was... Yeah. 2005-ish, six, you know, this was like when we weren't seeing the dark-skinned black girl right. with a natural hair and this eye fashion brand were embracing me. Mm. I remember one time I had to get um, a weave done for another job and I went to work with my weave and the client was like, I know, please take that off tomorrow. By tomorrow when you come into work, I need your natural hair back. Mm. So I was lucky to have these brands who... We're trying it. to redefine what yeah. beauty in the industry was. Yeah. Um, and also, I'm an, people don't believe this, but I am an introvert by nature. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I can believe with that. Modeling, with modeling, I was able to put on a show in a way. Like you would literally wear Oscar gown and mm-hmm. you are just like, no one can stop you. You're or somebody you wear, else. Yeah. You're somebody else. Or yeah. you wear like, you know, this amazing dress from McQueen and you're like, damn, I am a woman. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, you're just so powerful. Yeah. So I think with the foundation that I had, the upbringing that I had, the experiences that I had, um, and then just living in New York, like, mm-hmm. and I had, like, all my friends were young, black, powerful, smart. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I hang out with a few models, but when mm-hmm. work was done, I was going to hang out with my friends who... Went to Temple, we yeah. went to Penn, Harvard, like, you right. know, Spelman, like, and we lived in Harlem. Right. So there was this emergence of people who I was sheltered by as well, too, to ground me in my existence where mm. fashion was a mirage. It was a, that was not real life. Exactly. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, Well, honestly speaking, like the brands that I worked for, oh my gosh, I am beyond lucky to be able to have that experience. Mm. Um, And also, you you know why you're doing it. Mm-hmm. I knew it wasn't a forever thing. I'm like, I'm going to ride this, wear this to the shoes fall off kind of yeah. deal. I was trying to become like retired as a model. Absolutely right. not. You know? So I think yeah. that also gave me perspective as well too. That's good. No, that's good. I'm I'm so glad you touched on that. Um, what, what, what would you say was your biggest day in that career? What, what, what was the like, 
mom, you called your mom and said, mommy, I can't believe I'm doing it. Like what, what, what was that biggest moment? Would you say? There were too many. Okay. Okay. There were too many. I would say, gosh, um, well, that's a good question. I will. Okay. It was probably, I would say the first job that I did actually, and I'll tell you the first sort of big job that I did. Okay. So Acris is a Swiss German company. People don't really know them, but like. <laughs> They're a big deal. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Like. Yeah. If you understand sort of like, you know, architectural way of design, mm-hmm. um, Acris is one of them. So uh, I did a job for Acris in Philadelphia at the Neiman Marcus Mall in King Repusha. Mm-hmm. And I remember that day very, very clearly was the day, it was like the first day that, that was like my first runway show, like proper runway show. Mm-hmm. Everybody else around me was like 16. And there were a few ladies who were younger. I'm older, just given the Philadelphia market. Mm-hmm. It was the first time I got my makeup done professionally, like, mm. like in terms of the runway show. I'd done right. it for photo shoots before, which is a close and enclosed space. Right. But a fashion show, you have lights in front of you, you have yep. people, you have yeah. a designer that came. And I was not only the opening model, I was a closing model of mm, the show. Okay. And I had my afro, and I remember just walking down that runway, and I was like, wow. Mm-hmm. And then when I moved to New York, they were my they were they remembered seeing me in Philadelphia, and they became my number one consistent client. Mm. And then from that, all the businesses continued to just come and come and come. And then when there would be interns who worked at Oscar or wherever, when they would then get their full time jobs, mm-hmm. they would call my agent. Yeah. They were like, "You want to book Ina?" Because guess what? When the show was done, yeah. I stayed behind yeah. to hang up the clothes on the rack. Wow. Okay. So you you still that humble beginning is still played out, and yeah, I get oh, absolutely. it. Absolutely, because that yeah. wasn't my house. So you can't exactly. just like like when you take like when you go from one look to another, yeah. you're like I can change in like 15 seconds, right? right? So you don't have. But when the show was done, it was like, okay, what can I help you with? Okay, I can hang it up this way, and I will thank every single dresser. Mm. Mm. So it wasn't just about the designer; it was about the CEOs of the company. It was about who was booking me. It was about the dressers who were like dressing you during the show. Yeah. So you were not too big or too small for me to engage with. Wow. Wow. I get it. And that's the reason why I modeled for as long as I did. I get it. That uh, makes sense. So let's segue to where we where we met uh, in Tulsa, originally at the uh, the centennial of the, the, the Tulsa Race Massacre. And we you know flew a bunch of people in and uh, had uh, a very memorable, memorable week, a uh, powerful week, especially for Black Tulsa and for Blacks in America, uh, who kind of converged on Tulsa, and uh, it was just, it, it was very organic and very yeah. um, impactful, um, yeah. to the point that we're still talking about it three or four years later now, right? Uh, but that's where we first engaged and uh, kind of locked in. And it, it led to you actually moving to Tulsa. And so um, you talked about going to school um, at mm-hmm. Kellogg <clears throat> and getting that business degree and not being a birthing into the tech space yeah. uh, or, or into the VC space. And so can you talk a little bit about that being a black woman in venture capital and in your experience uh, while in Tulsa, you know, how, what kind of led you there and, and, and yeah. led you through here? So when I came to Tulsa for Centennial, um, you know, I'd heard about the, the race massacre, but much, 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 much later in life, right? Like mm-hmm. most people. 
And a friend of mine, Dozier, and Dozier is still a dear friend. I actually met Dozier during the business school hustle. Like we were like, like I met him. It was Columbia. They had like that diversity day. And I had on like this crazy gray braids, crazy Mm -hmm. outfit. And Dozier Mm -hmm. was like, who are you? And we have to be friends. So he was (laughs) Shout out to Dozier. That's my guy, Dozier. Yes. So he um, was in Tulsa working for um, the venture arm of the George Kaza Family Foundation at Tensor Capital. Mm-hmm. And he was like, I don't just come down. And I was like, okay. And this was like in the post-vaccination. We were coming out of, I guess, wave one slash two of COVID. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I felt that it was imperative to really try to understand this lay of the land where you had Black millionaires, which we were not used to hearing that narrative of the existence of Black Americans who had businesses, not artists, right. not entertainers, and not performers. Yeah. Um, and nothing wrong with that. You know what I mean? Yeah. But Black people who were running million-dollar business and serving their community and this entire neighborhood um, genocide literally mm-hmm. um, happened yeah. to these people. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when I came down to Tulsa, it was one of those things where it was just beautiful to be in a sea of Blackness. 100%. You know, yep. um, people from different parts of the country, different parts of the world, to some degree, conveyed mm-hmm. together, sort of like mis- Midwestern, Southern, um, I don't know what you guys consider, what's Tulsa? Is it, is it, is it it's Midwest. Midwest. It's Midwest, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a little bit of, it's a little bit of everything, but it's Midwest. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So, you know, that was a beautiful experience to then understand the story of, you know, um, people that actually lived through that experience. The survivors mm-hmm. who were some of, you know, I think it was like three or four who were still alive. Right. Um, to then understand the impact of the work, like that folks like the Judge Kaiser Family Foundation and the Schutzman Foundation um, mm-hmm. are doing to make sure Tulsa can be an inclusive tech place in the country and quite frankly, in the world. Yep. And it takes a lot of balls and courage to then say, what is my legacy beyond sort of the socioeconomic things that I do for tax purposes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but to really help drive change within this ecosystem and yep. how can we reimagine what wealth looks like um, for people that were stripped away, that it was stripped away from, Yes. Um, and that actually led me to reading this book called, I think it was called The Black Millionaires or something, um, okay. which is a fantastic, it's a short read. Mm-hmm. And it was a story of about, I think, eight or nine black millionaires in, 18, in the late of the 1800s into the early 1900s. Okay. And they focused on Tulsa doing that as well. So, so that kind of like gave me a visualize, not mm-hmm. just here in the stories, but to actually see where these atrocities against humanity actually happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I eventually, you know, met the folks at the Tento, I shared what I wanted to do, what I was passionate about. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I got a job offer. I actually had two other offers on the table, which mm-hmm. was, it was, it was tough. It was a tough decision. Yeah. And I went back to read my business school essay and the conclusion of my business school essay was to basically invest in entrepreneurs and founders who have been underrepresented in different industries and be able to provide not just access to capital, but help them think about operational excellence and efficiencies within their businesses around the world. Got it. That was was my business school essay. And within two years, you're doing it to me. Wow. Um, And that was the reason that was my anchor. So why I moved to Tulsa, honestly speaking. 
And, you know, I met folks like you who are doing just impressive, amazing work. The In Tulsa team, the Atento team, the Mm -hmm. Tulsa Innovation Lab team, the Building Tulsa team, Act House, Mm -hmm. um, um, Lightship Capital. And there was just a lot of activity on the ground and was just like really, really excited to be part of the reimagination of an ecosystem. Yes. And, you know, Tulsa was not going to be my forever. I think I told everyone that from day one. I was like, I'm going to get out of here because I'm a city girl. Yeah. (laughs) Not like, not like, not like, you know, what's not Carisha and uh, Big T. (laughs) 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 Um, But I was cities. Like, I just, but I knew that I needed to reset Mm -hmm. to propel myself forward. Got it. Um, and sometimes you not necessarily take a step back, but, you know, just literally like say, how can I go through a different path to get to where I'm trying to get to? Right. And it was an incredible experience. I learned mm-hmm. a ton about venture capital. I think when I was in Tulsa at the time, I believe that I was the only black woman that I would say that was able to drive decisions mm-hmm. of what companies are being invested in or what operational support looks like. Mm-hmm. Maybe there was another one, maybe two, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and I learned a great deal, made incredible connections. Um, so what it was like to kind of like think about how you build a venture capital firm as a venture arm of a family foundation and how you, you know, even brand yourself in a city that's known for oil and gas historically, right? right. But then you're now investing into like ed tech companies, fintech companies, where the infrastructure for those industries are not quite there, but they are building to get to that point. Exactly. That was exciting to be part yeah. of something new, something exciting. Um, yeah. And, you know, Tulsa was great, but at the same time, and I met like the most incredible people, like honestly speaking, like I'm, mm-hmm. I actually saw Dominic in San Francisco randomly in a hotel lobby last oh, weekend. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ran- I, I did like randomly. Wow. Um, but- shout out to Dom Artist. That's my <laughs> yeah, 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 shout out. Yeah, yes. doing amazing in Tulsa. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, I think one thing that people of color, immigrants and mm-hmm. women, and then for me, I have all those, I am all those All of those, right. right. We do not realize this, the personal sacrifices that we make mm-hmm. in order for us to achieve our professional success. Exactly. You know? Yeah. And I felt that at this point in my life, I just could no longer make those personal sacrifices for professional achievements anymore. Yeah. And I miss my family. Um, I miss my friends. I missed being able to just pick up and walk down the street and, you know, it's Brooklyn. Brooklyn is crazy. But the people around, like, I just, I just, you know, it's a place where there are people who think like me, who look like me, who move like me, who navigate all these spaces like me on an every single everyday basis. Right. And I just felt that Tulsa was too small for me personally as a Nigerian, yeah. Yoruba, Lagosian mm-hmm. woman. You know what yeah. I mean? Um, but it was a remarkable experience. Yeah. No, that's that's good. And I, I appreciate the honesty in that. Uh, I just have two more questions. You know, if you can take us through um, a period of time where you had to hold on to hope. Um, mm-hmm. And like, what, what, how did you define that? How did you uh, how did you make it out? You know, it may have been a dark experience. It may have been a season of period a period of time. 
or it could have been something that was just, you know, a, a difficult conversation or maybe it was the fi- the uh, layoff that happened. Or, But if you can identify a time where you had to hold on to hope, how did you do it and how did how how what was the outcome? Oh, that's a tough one because I just feel like there have been so many. Right. OK. Yeah. Um, there have been so many. And so I would say that one of the difficult decisions that I've ever had to make and I don't you know, I hate going back to this conversation was me leaving Tulsa. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was challenging because, you know, you th- I was like, oh, not that you've made it, but I have yeah. achieved this. What you what you what you want were seeking. Yes. That was seeking, right? Mm-hmm. And this is where sometimes as humans, we're always chasing events. We're mm-hmm. always chasing, oh, if I do this, if I do this, I will, that, that is success, right? Right. But I think what has helped me is understanding that success is a mindset. That's good. Okay. You know what I mean? Success is being able to say like, those experiences do not define, um, who I am as a person to some cool. degree, maybe it's like about your reaction to a situation. Um, but I think for me it's the evolution of understanding what success is independently of experiences. Right. And you know, when that internet, when, when, you know, it was just, just multiple things, right. Mm-hmm. Where I was like, Hey, just push through, just push through. Yeah. What helped me was that my dad, when I was going to Tulsa, shout out to my father and my mother. Mm-hmm. My mother said one state, and this is a statement we're raised by, nothing ventured, nothing gained. And mm. that was imprinted on the walls of a tent of capital on the second floor. I don't know if it's still there, but it was wow. there. I said that. That was why I was like, okay. And then my father said, this is what you have to do. Every single day, Write down. So I got um, what do you call it? Um, a poster, not a, poster like, board. A poster board, exactly. Yeah. And my dad said to me, every day you leave your house, look in that thing and orient yourself so you understand who you are, what you came here for, what you came to achieve, what happiness means to you, and what success means to you. Mm-hmm. And if one out of all those things and that lever is completely shifted. Mm-hmm. Orient yourself as to your why every single day. And the moment that it then became all those things were no longer, I was like, it's time to go. It's time to go. I see. Yep. Go. But yep. for me, I held on to hope because of the mm-hmm. foundation that my parents gave me, the words, the wisdom. Yeah. But also their ability to know that I have hope because I can rely on them. I can rely on my siblings. Not a lot of people yeah. have that. You know right. what I mean? Right. So I think that was what kind of kept me grounded. And just all the other experiences I've been through in life, quite frankly, not that they were hard, mm-hmm. but I've done some crazy things in my career. I yeah. just, I just, all right, let's, things will, things will always work out. They'll work out. Somehow, some way, they will some work way, out. Some yeah. way. So I think what's important for people is to every single day, and I had a countdown, like every day I would come back home and I would erase the board. Mm-hmm. And then say 236 more days left. Mm. Got it. You know what I mean? And I still had a whole lot of days left on that board. However, <laughs> it's also knowing that it's okay to walk away. I think sometimes we're so tied to this outcome and it's like, yeah. just move. You can change the plan. You know? Yeah. Just, yeah. you know, yeah. So, yeah. And just understanding, you know, yeah. So I think for me, it's like, it's, it's the orientation is mm-hmm. what gives me hope. 
And knowing wow. that, you know what, some of you just have bad days. Some days you're like, you know what, there's no hope. World yeah. sucks. Life is yeah. awful. Yeah. And on those days, I make a decision, an active decision to not stay there. Say, how do I choose to want this day to be, go on? Yeah. And how do I choose for it to end? And there's some days that I'm like, okay, close the blinds, turn the windows up, get on the comforter, <laughs> take a nap, and just wait till tomorrow. Yeah. No, but I get it. The moment you wake up, there's hope. Mm. Say that again. I like that. <laughs> I like that. Say and and, and these, this is, these are my parents. Every single day, when you wake up, you have life. You have, you mm-hmm. take a breath. Yeah. In that moment, there's hope. Wow. So it's that decision that you, that you literally actively have to make to give gratitude and yeah. give grace and then say, if I'm able to wake up my, you know, even if you don't have all your senses, right? Mm-hmm. But there's hope. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. That's really good, Ina. Uh, was your dad an engineer or something? My dad is, what was, it was <laughs> I wish he'd been an engineer because he's, 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 he studied economics and okay. then he studied philosophy and okay. he, he has his PhD. So I guess it has a, has a systematic way of thinking. Yeah. I'm and, listening to like the, I'm listening to like the acute, um, how acutely logical he is um, yeah. in like is is very precise in what he's solving for in all yeah. of his advice. Yeah. And um, yeah. It, it sounds very much like a, like a the beautiful mind of an engineer or something like he's that. He's a systems, he's a system, he's a systems thinker, actually. It's funny. Like when I go to my mom, I know why I go to my mom. You know yeah. what I mean? My mom is, she just, I love that woman. She's just like, crush it she just bum rushes yeah yeah nothing comes in her way like she's just that person who acts and she thinks later like i think there's i think there's a strength there's a balance yeah absolutely yeah think too much you would not get anything done right you'll be paralyzed yeah paralyzed but Mm -hmm. for her she's like okay this is what we want to do okay okay let's go let's go let's go yeah 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 yeah. oh yeah means let's go in like in your back Mm-hmm. Like that woman, if not for her, the way she just like, I owe, like we owe everything to her. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. My dad is more of like, okay, what are the variables at hand? What are the mm-hmm. unknowns? Right. How can you take this to this to this to make predictive decisions versus reactive decisions? That's good. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think it was helpful to have and that my balance. Mom creative kind of like she's a and my dad and my dad is he's a poet he's a writer like studied in france for his master's and his phd mm-hmm. you know and then my mom you know has her master's so it's like a very like they just think differently but we're able to have the balance of creativity and analytical way of thinking in the mm-hmm. household yeah and it sounds like you're a blend of both of them because yeah. <laughs> you, you know with the modeling everything on one side and then yeah. with the very you know uh, the scholastics and how you, yeah. uh, you know, achieve the academic. So it's not like you, your balance of both of them. Uh, last okay. question is what is a call to action you would give to our listeners? Uh, and then that you would leave your handles or how could people follow you or uh, maybe even follow eye of Africa? Yeah. Call to action. I would just say really, truly find out why you're here. And what mm. is, wait, what is, what, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. The one thing I've learned to do, and this is during like my um, recruiting process, like, you know, just as I'm recruiting for a full-time role, um, I think the call to action is finding your purpose, right? Mm-hmm. 
and it could be a statement. So I came up with a with a with a purpose statement, and that purpose mm-hmm. statement is for me to champion and harness creativity in myself and others. So mm-hmm. as I interview for every job. Or as I interact with human beings, if you don't align with that statement, mm-hmm. not for me. Mm-hmm. Honestly speaking, like I literally orient myself with that purpose statement and everything that I touch, everything that I do and who I interact with. Wow. Because for me, it's like at, at, my success for me is when my purpose, my passion and my power is mm-hmm. able to influence the impact that I want to see in this world. Okay. And power does not mean money always. Yes, it's extremely helpful. We need more Right. Like people who have, who are billionaires, millionaires, thousandaires, thousandaires. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like we just need more within our ecosystem yeah. in order for us to see change globally around the world. Mm-hmm. But power could also be, how do you use your social influence to drive change to empower others? Right. So just find out what your purpose is. Find out what your passion is. You know, it doesn't have to be big. It's just be, you know, it could be. You know, like I'm actually working with a few founders where I don't get paid for it, but I'm mm-hmm. like, you know what? You're trying to get capital. Let's, you know, how do I help you pitch yeah. for investments? How do I make introductions? Mm-hmm. Um, right now, I'm volunteering with an organization called Operately Global, mm-hmm. and it's to help new immigrants migrate to America. So, how do they, you know, jobs, um, interviews, coaching, all these different things? And the lady who I'm helping out now, she's a 61 year old woman. She's, no, I'm sorry mid 60s mm-hmm. who came from east africa mm-hmm. and my job and what i and she's you know just interviewing is really really challenged she's a uh, trucking insurance her entire career mm-hmm. and what i do every two weeks i get on a call a 30 minute zoom call with her and have a conversation so she can be more confident when she's interviewing in right. english right that's championing somebody else absolutely yeah. You know what I mean? Um, it's me empowering my nieces and my nephews to do whatever it is that they want to do, whereby money would not be an obstacle for them to say, I can't do X, Y, and Z because I cannot afford to. So they right. will have the liberty and the freedom mm-hmm. to achieve whatever it is that they want to achieve. And finances does not stop them from doing that. For me, that yeah. is what my purpose is. Wow. Um, so yeah, just find out what that thing is for you and mm-hmm. the legacy you intend to leave. And when you're no longer here, what if not so much what are people saying about you, mm-hmm. but what positive impact have you left? Mm-hmm. What have you left in this world that lives beyond your physical existence? That's good. That's good. And how you can find me. Sure. Um, right now, I'm not on. I'm not active on social media. I'm taking okay. a social media mental break. Ain't however, wrong with that. <laughs> however um, my personal Instagram is. First and last name, Ina Fadina. Twitter is Ina underscore Fadina. Mm-hmm. And I of Africa's Instagram is at I, the letter I, individualism of Africa. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's how you can that's how you can find me. And if you really want my details, just ask Carrie. <laughs> 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 okay, so can you tell us a little bit about uh, the, the 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 impact or the value of a black woman being in venture capital and what that meant to you and what that means on a broader broader scale? Look, venture is hard, right? Like, let's just yeah. take everything outside of the equation. I think venture is a very, very, very risky asset class, right? Mm-hmm. 
and you know venture is not for the faint of heart because i think well i think only like 92% of companies are invested in are going to be successful yep. so when you think about that data points even begin with like why would everyone build a career in that given just how risky it's going to be right however um when we think about those people who are allocating capital in the mm-hmm. vc world it is not reflective of the population of people that are in the world Correct. it's not reflective of the pop- of what the population will look like in 2050 mm-hmm. um i think by 2050 53% of the us population would no longer be white correct however we think about the people that have power to mm-hmm. allocate money to the funds of funds mm-hmm. to the gps like the investment like the vc companies Mm-hmm. to the investors when you think about that whole trickle down effect mm-hmm. they are not representative of who the population is yeah so as a black woman as a woman period like let's just start mm-hmm. with that bucket cuz you know right. whatever isms whether you know yeah. whatever you know yeah. as a woman if we're 50% of the population but then it's not reflective of those who are writing the checks how do we invest in black you know female entrepreneurs Right. Um who are creating solutions and also who's making decisions in the home it's not always the man yes. you know what i mean and we also have earning power earning potential mm-hmm. and we're the ones who are making decisions for families for kids for parents and you know all these different things right so when i think about what role i have to play as an immigrant as a woman as a black mm-hmm. woman it is so imperative when i walk into the room and it's hard cuz it's like you're you're putting you're putting everyone's like you're carrying the weight of the world to some degree yep. as a, as a as a black woman and we've done that enough in society. Right. However, understanding that because I am in that room and I'm able this is important but I am able to make a decision. Don't just have because we have enough VC firms who have us in the room, but yes. we're not driving decisions about decisions. how capital is allocated. Yes. Exactly. Um if I'm at that table, I know that there will be a process as to how we think through an equitable lens of That's how right. we give capital and also it's just not capital right so if, if we don't give you capital how do i make sure and you know women get enough what do you call it we get enough mentorship right but mm-hmm. how do you balance capital access to that and also mm-hmm. mentorship and guidance and all these different things your and network Exactly, exactly. Yeah. How do I get access to your network? You know? network. It, yeah, it's yeah. Network. You yeah. know, the, when I was raising money for I of Africa, guess what? Mm-hmm. The most influential person, he told me no, but mm-hmm. guess what? What he has given me and the access right. that I have based on his network. Right. It's so much more than what that money would have done to influence my life. You know exactly. what I mean? Yeah. But, you know, I, like I said, you know, when I'm when I'm at that table or when I'm able to make a decision to, you know, I can help to then say, "Oh, this is why we're not seeing this perspective of mm-hmm. how you're looking at what the solution is because you don't understand the way in which those consumers are existing mm-hmm. every single day in their communities, exactly. how they're thinking." So that's why diversity is not just diversity of like, okay, Yes, you're black, but you went to Harvard and you've been a financial investment banker. No shade to those people. Right. What I mean, we need those people. Right. But how do we also have a diversity of thought, diversity mm-hmm. of socioeconomic backgrounds at the table, yeah. diversity of gender, diversity of just everything? 
Yeah. Make sure we get to, we continue to progress mm-hmm. to a society where we truly mean equity. It's not just about being on the same street as you, but you want me right. in a much smaller house. Nah, yes. That's not equity. Sounds good. I, and I really appreciate this time. This, I'm, um, you you are a rock star. I just want you to know that. And Thank I want you to you. continue to do the great work that you're doing around the world. Um, this has been so rewarding. So thank, thank you. you. And for all of our listeners, thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of New Voices. We will be back with some more wonderful guests for you. Um, also, please like, share, and follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. I will, until next time, continue to be blessed. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of New Voices. Visit our website at www.newutulsa.com. That is N-E-W-U-Tulsa.com. Follow us on social media at New U Tulsa on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And a special thank you to our producer, Jesse Ulrich. If you're looking for self-improvement, join our free cohorts for personal and professional development opportunities. New You is a way for diverse talent to imagine, discover, and actualize a 2.0 version of yourself. Bring your future into focus.